This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, and death's a part of life. And sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. And the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. 
I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form, on my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And today's story is from our own Alex Cortez, and it's about Walter Blessy Jr., someone that you likely do not know, but you'll be glad to have met him. Let's take a listen. I get out of the Army and I take my first job. I had offers from McDermott, Draveau, and Bechtel, all as an engineer. And I didn't want to be an engineer. I was good at it, but I, I didn't want to get pigeonholed and, and to be an engineer. So I took a job as assistant to a vice president at this company. And the culture at that company was horrible. I was there a year, and I could take my two-week vacation then. And I'd started about the 1st of November, and I put in for my vacation. My boss approved it. And then, I'll say his name, Mr. Branning disapproved it. And I go see Mr. Branning to see why he disapproved my vacation. And he says, you have to take it in the year it comes due. I said, you mean I have to take it between November 1st and December 31st every year? He said, yes. I said, well, what happened if I started working the end of December? I never get a vacation? He said, don't get smart with me. That was the culture. It was pretty ridiculous. The new CEO comes in. Now, I get my break. I wanted to leave. My dad said, you, you got to get a job before you leave somewhere else. And I wanted to leave so bad. Well, the government intervened, believe it or not. They made it illegal to burn gas in a boiler. So overnight, our company, which covered four states, had to go out and buy oil. So stupid them said, bless you, you want to go buy the oil? I said, sure. So I look up oil. Immediately, I was buying nearly 50 million barrels of oil a year. At 27 years old. I was buying it in Europe. I was buying it in Venezuela. And I was buying it in the States. I had to put it on ships, put it on barges, get terminaling to unload the ships and all, and then get them to the plants. And I was loving it. It was an incredible job, incredible challenging. I was out dealing with people. This is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be stress equals MC over I. I was just having a ball. And I got a raise to twelve eight, up eight hundred dollars from twelve thousand. The new CEO comes in, and he says, "How can we save money for the company?" I show him example of example of how I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, or maybe millions, for the company. I give him concrete examples. Why? Because one person cannot buy and transport and storage, dispatch for 50 million barrels a year. You can't do it. So I showed the gentleman how I needed a $8,000 a year secretary to type and file and keep all this stuff. I needed a $10,000 dispatcher to help me with the ships and movements and the calls at night and all that stuff. One person couldn't do it. You really couldn't do it with three, frankly. But at least it was a start. Well, he comes back, so help me God, He comes back with, bring your own pencil. We have no more free company pencils. And the coffee rooms are going to have cups. You put a dime in for every cup of coffee you take. That's what he came back with for an enterprise that big. Um, And I said, man, I I just, I can't take this culture. It's just, it's just ridiculous. So Walter tried to find a better culture, one where he had more control over it. Some people I'd done a terminal contract with, I put the bug in their ear that, you know, with all the tanks you all have, you ought to be trading oil. You, ought to, you have tanks all the time empty. And so they came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, would you be interested in starting a company doing that? And I said, yeah. 
and I gave him a proposal where I would make a salary of $22,000 a year. And the first 100,000 I made was theirs. The next 200,000 I got 20% of, the next 215% and thereafter 10%. If they had a tank empty, I could use the tank that was empty. So the first year I personally went from just starting to make 14.5 to making about $600,000. And the folks were not happy about it. They thought they could get the president of Exxon for $600,000. And every year they changed the deal on me to my disadvantage, obviously. And then the fifth year, about midsummer, they said, you've made so much money. We want you to work without compensation to January 1. And then we're going to pay you $60,000 a year. So I had all my stuff gone. I just left and started for my house. Started his own company whose culture and destiny was his to shape, a company that also traded oil and later when he noticed the high burnout rate among those who owned the physical assets on the waterways, the boats and the barges that actually move our nation's oil, a slightly important thing, he decided to get into that and build a company, Blessy Marine Services, that would be built to last. I think I had two motivations behind my success. One was that I didn't like what I saw working for other people. So I had to make it on my own. I just had to find a way to make it on my own. And secondly, I learned very early on that if you're committed to making the best product you can make, if you're committed to giving the best service you can do, it all falls in place. The money comes because people want to buy your product to take your service. The big boys are going to want to use you. Walter went from a one-person company himself to a two-person company for 10 years. And today, Blessy Marine Services has over 700 employees, 85 towboats, and 150 barges because of its culture. A culture that names their boats after their employees. A culture that takes administrative staff to the founder's house to be pampered by he and his wife for several days. A culture that paid for a captain's son to go to college after the captain died of colon cancer. A culture that has led three generations of a family to serve in the company, the Adamses, and a culture that gives out an award for the dumbest mistake of the year and one that has some pretty ridiculous Halloween parties. Years ago, I came as a scuba diver in a wetsuit, and um, Brenda, God bless her, who's passed. Brenda was a controller at the company. It was a matrix, and um, I got on the floor on my knees, and she was whipping me, you know, and um, yeah, I know, and uh, there are pictures of that around. Were you married? I was married, yeah, I was married. <laughs> But, but anyway, you know, you know, you work hard, you play hard. That's all my motto. Work hard and play hard, and we we do. And um, Brenda, God bless her. About about two years ago, was coming back from seeing her son in Arkansas, and um, start feeling bad, and she turned out to have terminal cancer. I said, Brenda, you're getting paid just like you're at the office. You're working from your house. She, she was dying in her house, but so we paid her full salary for six or seven months, and. Um, and she said, Walter, I, I, I have enough to be, not be paid. I don't need to be paid. I said, Brenda, you can't not cash the checks. 
And so she lasted about six months. And she called me every week, and we talked, and um, it was pretty sad. She finally called me the last week and said, Walter, I don't think I'll be coherent anymore, so I'm just saying goodbye. Love you. I said, Brenda, love you. And um, she passed, and she, thank God, we named a boat after her about a year before she passed. And she was there for the boat, Christine, and she was so appreciative. Her son was there. And um, I never saw a man in her life, well, her husband or ex-husband, never saw that. So she raised her son by herself, and um, she was a, a great person, and we all miss her. And her picture's up on the wall, just like the people that have retired or have passed in our office. Yeah. I pointed out to Walter that we usually don't think of CEOs crying about their employees. They might cry about their kids, but I can't remember a time where the media showed a CEO crying about their employees. You're not real if you don't. You're not real if you don't. <laughs> we had a, at the office, we had a, a lawyer talk about harassment and um, and, uh, you know, in, in the workplace. And um, afterwards, she said, I get it, Walter. You can't harass me, but I can harass you. And she did. Every time she'd race down the hall when I was there, and she'd bear hug me, and I'd just stand there with my arms down, and she would rub herself against me. And she was, she was so, so, so incredible. And I'll always remember and miss Brenda. Yeah, she can harass me, but I can't harass her. <laughs> Go figure, huh? Brenda sure was unique, and unique to Walter. But then again, she wasn't. During our interview, Walter shed tears about several other people who he's worked with. And when we come back more on Walter Blessy's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamer segment and Walter Blessy's story. One of the things we do that's, um, uh, that I don't think anybody else does, we let our people buy into the company. In other words, we'll form a partnership where we put a couple of barges in there, maybe a boat, and um, I'll, I'll say that the company or me are going to put up, we want to raise so much capital, and the company or me is going to put up half, guarantee half, and you all can have whatever you want of the next half, and whatever's left, if there's anything left, we'll take that. So we've let them buy in like that, and the first partnership is paid back four times what is invested, four times. So we let them be an owner. You know? 
The extraordinary thing is that Walter doesn't have to do this, especially if he pays good salaries, which he does, and he's been able to give out bonuses every single year. We're pretty happy workers with that, and with a great culture to work at. With Blessy being his company, Walter has every right to make the full capital investments personally and reap the full financial reward from them instead of only half and half the reward. People ask me, don't you wish you hadn't done that? I said, no, I'm fine. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to make them owners. Um, and uh, it just, it's just nice. It's important to note that Walter created and cultivated this incredible culture in spite of tremendous personal challenges at times that could have left him an angry, bitter, and ugly person to work with. His first wife became mentally ill. I've never been so low. I came home and the locks had been changed. And I figured that, okay, she was upset or something. And um, all of a sudden the police come to the house. They asked me, you Walter Blessy? Yeah. They, hand, they illegally handcuffed me to the light pole in front of the house. Neighbors are looking out of the windows, like, what What did he do, you know? And um, I, about an hour later, I get served a lawsuit alleging that I have beaten my wife and molested my children, a divorce suit. And I'm restrained from go, seeing my kids, I'm restrained from going to my house, I'm restrained from everything, and um, it took me maybe two months to dig out from that, to get my kids. But um, I remember my wife's father walking out of the house and walking up to me handcuffed to the pole and said, what you did was despicable. I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything. She had convinced me that he had molested her as a kid and maybe that was a lot of her problems. Um, but. Um, it was a low point, just, just a low point when you wonder where, you know, can you put one foot in front of the other? Another time my wife came after me with a knife. I hung in until it was obvious that she was sick, 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 because back then the courts gave the kid, the kids to the woman, period. In the 70s and 80s, the woman got the kids. So until she was taken out of the house from handcuffs and, and was ultimately Um, also put in an asylum, and um, I had to live through that as well. And it, I was a single parent when I was married. You know, I, I, my daughters turned out fine, thank God. But if I could not divorce, every time we got close to divorce, it was obvious that she was going to get the kids, and I could not leave and let her get raise those kids. So that was the toughest thing of my life: is staying with Ann for all these years until. Um, until I could definitely get the kids. And she got in and out, and um, she was in briefly and out, and in and out and several times. Um, so um, that was a little decade, decade class asked me what I'm most proud of in my life. And I said that, I said I didn't, there was nothing in it for me for a decade, and yet I stayed in. So to those that are having some tough times, I had tough times. and. Somehow I survived, somehow I could have the fortitude to get through it. So you can too. Yeah, you can too.
And I'll tell you one story. I think this was kind of cool. My wife called me at the office. Come home that Laura, my younger daughter, has cut her hair. And Laura, I go up to see Laura, and she's cut her hair to the scalp right everywhere. And I talk to her a little bit, and then I finally say, uh, Laura, honey, I see you, you cut your hair. Why did you cut your beautiful blonde hair? She says, because, Dad, I want to be just like you. I want to be just like you. And I know what to say. I said, you had beautiful hair, honey. You need, you need your hair. But um, I always remember that to my dying day, that, that despite the atmosphere, I had that relationship with my, my girls. So, but now I have such an incredible wife with my love of my life, my wife. I finally got it right. I would not be complete if I did not have Jane Ann. And I'm complete with my wonderful, loving wife that loves me, that I love. So it's uh, been a tough road to get here, but I'm here. Here's how Walter met Jane Ann. In between wives, um, I'd be going to the bus stop and I'd stop and talk to the mothers on Monday morning. And um, they were my support group. I'd tell them about the dates I had, and they said they were living vicariously through me. But they, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to marry that one. You don't want to keep dating that one. And they were all my support group. So finally, one of them says, "I want you to meet my friend. She has three daughters, a cat, and a dog." And I said, "Oh my God," to myself. But I had to go through the motions, right? Because they were my support group and uh, my cheerleaders. And so I made, I'm gonna make one, one call, take her out for dinner, and one and out, you know. And I fell. The second day, second date, I said, where do you want to go on honeymoon? We did it two years, I had to be sure. I knew. That gives me the deepest sense of fulfillment is it, it, that I have found the love of my life and um, my buddy, my best friend, my love, and um, we get along so well. And um, I, if I ever disappointed her, I'd just probably shoot myself. If I ever truly disappoint any of them, um, I, I couldn't live with myself. As you can probably tell by now, Walter can be as colorful as he is earnest. He won't be disappointing them. And to close, we go back to his business, Blessing Marine Services, and onto something Walter said that I found absolutely shocking. 40 years into their enterprise, and with so many families they're providing for, and at the top of the industry in client surveys, their business is still in debt. Well, you know, you start out from scratch. You know, I started out from an apartment over a garage. So no money and, you know, a couple of thousand in the bank. And um, so, you know, you're in the capital intensive business and boats and barges cost money and it costs a lot of money to maintain them. So it's hard to start from scratch with nothing in a capital intensive business. It just is. And um, the company, I'm looking forward to paying down debt at about 20% a year. And in five years, we should have no debt. And I'll be 78 then. But uh, on the other hand, leaving a company with, with no debt to my, my heirs. Walter and the company have spent around $700 million in capital investments into our economy that created this debt that they're so close to finally getting rid of. I think we may be the only marine company in America that's gonna be debt free, I truly do. 
It's not easy thing to do. And what a story. Great job as always, Alex. And by the way, when you're putting much that much capital on your balance sheet, you're buying metal from other companies. Those companies employ people. Those companies get the steel from another company which employs people. This is the American dream at work, folks, for everybody in this country. What a story. What heart. Walter Blessy's story, the founder of Blessy Marine Services. And my goodness, I don't think it gets better. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for all that we do Listen to our podcast, stream it, OurAmericanNetwork.org. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling so good so spiritually good that we must take the time to sit back close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas, to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, A dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop the pootie from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles 
that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely. The idea of having just one movie to watch, I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how did you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space. They're, I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. 
So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where did they even come from? The, the Jerry Maguire's was it was really just the uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think the, there there are many many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture, um, we are working with a team of uh, engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from <laughs> our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes, uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, We've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the pyramid. We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's, and uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry Maguire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, and they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer, a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? 
To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm, I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. <laughs> A lot more of them. This is Our American Stories, and we've got a treat for you this hour of this day in history that focuses on a name you all know, Steinway, but a man you don't, Henry Steinway, who was born on this day in history in 1797. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway, goes Irving Berlin's song, I Love a Piano. By 1915, Berlin didn't need to explain the word Steinway. It had been the preeminent American piano for more than 50 years. After 1860, most pianos were copies of Steinway's. Chickering, Weber, Mason, and Hamlin all came and went. Steinway stayed on top. In the end, the story we are about to bring you is a story about resiliency and the search for freedom. Let's take a listen to that story. As guests dine on succulent roasted fowl and mouth-watering marinated oysters, washing their palates with ice-cold champagne, piano music is in the air. The occasion is the opening of the new Steinway factory in New York on April 1st, 1860. A correspondent from a local newspaper declares, it is conceded that the Steinway piano in make, tone, sweetness, precision and durability is the most perfect instrument of that class to be had anywhere in the world. The road to victory began 63 years earlier in Wolfshagen, a small forest hamlet nestled in the slopes of the Upper Hartz Mountains in northwest Germany, where Heinrich Steinweg, founder of Steinway & Sons, is born. Church records reveal that the Steinwigs were master charcoal burners. They lived in the woods and, like most charcoal burners, were regarded with deep suspicion by townspeople who rarely saw them. Steinwig's childhood is marked by many tragedies and twists of fate. At the age of eight, during a harsh winter, his mother and most of his siblings die from exposure. He is orphaned until his father and brothers, once thought to have been killed in action, return from the Napoleonic Wars and claim him. Then, at 15, he is orphaned once again, penniless and living on the streets. He seeks refuge in the German army. Two years later, he is fighting against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Family legend has it that when an advance is made on Napoleon, 
the charge is signaled by a lone bugler, Heinrich Steinweg. According to this tale, he is awarded a bronze medal for bugling in the face of the enemy. When not heading off to battle, he is in the barracks, making mandolins and other instruments, and occasionally striking up a tune with a military band. After six years of military service, Steinweg begins an apprenticeship with the church organ builder. He is also introduced to the piano through his Jewish friend Karl Brand. Steinweg learns to build a piano by copying Brands. As he changes the pipes of church organs, he becomes interested in notes, octaves, and chords. Thirsting for knowledge, he appears every Friday evening at his church to listen to the organist rehearse for Sunday services. Every German craftsman in 1835 has to belong to a guild. Since Heinrich Steinweg doesn't have a master craftsman diploma as an instrument maker, he's not allowed to build pianos officially. So he becomes a cabinet maker. But he's still very much interested in building instruments. He has restored, uh, I think, many instruments. He has seen them, he has compared them, and he has made his own uh, concept, his own piano, at that time for him, who was better than the instruments he has seen around him. Apart from being skilled in working with wood and special tools, building a keyboard instrument requires musicality and a complex knowledge of mathematics and physics. But Steinweg relies on intelligence and intuition. The cabinet maker decides to start building forte pianos and courts a woman he falls madly in love with, Juliana Tima, the daughter of a well-established glove maker. For the wedding, Steinweg wants to impress his sweetheart with a very unusual gift. Oh my goodness! Is that for me? Did you make this? Of course. Can I play it? In 1835, he gives his bride his first square piano that he designs himself. It sounds wonderful. Here's Heinrich Steinweg's descendant, Miles Chapin. That is consistent a little bit with this image of a businessman. I mean, if, if your first product is very complex and technically complicated, you don't want to sell it because it might break, in which case your reputation is ruined before it's even been made. So for him to take his first piano and give it to his wife, I think that's wonderful. Here, you, you play this, honey, and tell me if it works, you know. Newly wed and raring to go, Heinrich Steinweg starts working and wants to build not only good pianos, but the best pianos in the world. With meticulousness and passion, he begins building his first grand piano in 1836, which he later sells to the Duke of Brunswick for 3,000 marks. This piano is later named the Kitchen Piano and is now on display at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, along with the square piano he gave to his wife. I believe he started out as a cabinet maker. But if you think about it from a businessman's point of view, with the amount of labor and the amount of time it takes to make one thing that's this big, okay, if this thing is a chest of drawers, you can sell it for X. But if this thing that you're making is a piano and takes longer to make, you can sell it for five times X, six, ten times X, so that his product could be more valuable to him and his profit margins would be greater. I don't think he was driven musically at all. I don't think he was driven creatively at all. I think he was purely 
My take is a purely a businessman, and he had a product that was a higher value product, and he would get a higher profit from it. Easier to transport, easier to build at home. He could have one at a time going, uh, and that was why he went into it. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Steinway, born on this day in history in 1797, and as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More after these messages. our American stories and you're hearing a Steinway piano being played that's Rachmaninoff and Henry Steinway is the focus of this hour born on this day in history in Germany in 1797 and by the way so many of our this day in history stories when they're about business and they're back century and two centuries ago are about immigrants and by the way even our Andy Grove story which actually was just a Less the this day in history story than a celebration of his life. And he's one of the powerhouses behind Intel. Another amazing immigration story and an immigrant story. We pick up things where we left off. Steinweg's first grand piano is an enormous success. To meet the growing demand, Heinrich Steinweg decides to train his young boys. Even his five-year-old has to help out in the workshop. His musically talented daughter, Doretta, is only allowed to watch. The crafts are strictly for men. With the help of his sons, Steinweg can make 10 to 12 instruments a year. Then, in 1848, riots engulf most of Europe because of political instability and economic uncertainty, spawning movements towards socialism. Heinrich's second son, Charles, is on the front lines in the fight for the people's sovereignty against an absolutist prince and the civil liberties for the Christian middle class. The socialist revolution fails to produce a redistribution of wealth, land, or power, but it did paralyze businesses throughout Europe, thereby encouraging businessmen like Heinrich Steinweg to consider leaving. Fearing reprisals for their son, Charles leaves Germany and sails to New York City in 1849 where he is to find a safe haven both for himself and for the Steinweg piano business. In June 1849, Charles lands in New York, the heart of professional music making in America and of America's piano industry. The other major piano manufacturing cities are Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, all centers for German immigrants. Pianos have only been in America since the revolution most of them brought in from shipwrecks by pirates as part of their booty. The rest were imported by John Jacob Astor, the German millionaire fur trader, who occasionally bartered furs for pianos. 
beloved parents, brothers and sisters. Six weeks after his arrival, Charles writes to his family for the first time. New York seems to be an El Dorado for keyboard instruments. I soon found employment with a piano manufacturer. It's a pretty well-paying job. The growth of wealth in the United States promises great opportunities for piano manufacturers. You'll hardly believe it, but in nearly every household there's a piano. Family music is a part of daily life here. Be courageous and do not hesitate for too long. It was a time of great political upheaval in Germany, uh, in Europe, all through Europe. Um, it was not a climate conducive to business. And the Steinways, if anything, were businessmen. And Heinrich, if anything, was a businessman. And he lived in this small town in the Harz Mountain region, Zazen. And he made his pianos one by one at home. But to sell them, he had to take them places. And to take them places, he had to cross borders. And when he crossed borders, there were tariffs, there were added costs that weren't going into his pocket. And he was ambitious. I think he just decided rationally to leave Germany to set up a shop in New York City. On May 28, 1850, the Steinbigs, along with their three daughters and three sons, board the first German ocean liner in Hamburg. On her maiden voyage, the Steinbigs reached New York City in just 30 days. Their eldest son, Theodore, stays in Germany to run the rest of the company. When the Steinbigs arrive, they face no restrictions, no questions, no Ellis Island, and no Statue of Liberty. They quickly move into a small rented apartment on Hester Street, in the middle of a quarter that's known as Little Germany. The Steinbigs' apartment is certainly very different from their spacious home back in Germany. With more than 600,000 German immigrants, New York is a German enclave. By 1860, one out of every four New Yorkers is German-born. Only Berlin and Vienna have more German citizens. These Germans brought with them a classical music culture which didn't exist in America. Here's Kathleen Hulser from the New York Historical Society, speaking to us on St. Mark's Place just between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. On this street, you could see how busy and productive Germans were when they got to America. There would be pretzel sellers along this street, people selling cabbage, women selling clothes. And the Germans were really good at founding their own groups. They liked to get together and do things together. So they had Turnverein, a club for men. They had their beer gardens where the whole family would go. And they had things like a gun club, which you can see right on this street. It's still here. The gun club, the Schützengesellschaft, is something that was not just about shooting targets, it was also about men enjoying each other's company and drinking beer. The Steinbigs didn't go into business right away. Instead, they decided to work for others until they got their feet on the ground and learned some English and New York methods. Heinrich and his sons select the best New York piano makers to work for so that they can learn the latest and finest techniques. But three years after their arrival, an economic depression hits New York. Heinrich's sons are unemployed, and he's earning a very low day's pay as an employed piano maker. But giving up is out of the question. Don't worry, Juliana. 
I've got a plan. In these times of instability, the piano maker quits his job and opens his own workshop with his sons. They no longer have very much to lose, but with this move, they now have the potential to achieve a lot. To help with sales, business friends advise the Steinvigs to Americanize their name. And so Heinrich Steinvig becomes Henry Steinway. A humble attic on Varick Street, just below Canal Street on the west side of Manhattan, becomes their first company headquarters. On March 5, 1853, with only a verbal contract and a capital investment of just $6,000, the family-owned company called Steinway & Sons is founded. It was a good time to be in the piano business. Musical life in America was flourishing, and the piano was at the center of the increasing interest in music. Music in the home was seen as medicine for the soul and a stimulant for romance. Most piano pupils were women, other instruments being seen as detracting from feminine attractiveness. The cello demanded that a woman spread her legs, and the harp ruined her posture. But at the piano, she could sit demurely with her feet together. Even courtship increasingly took place at the keyboard. Now, my mother was the Steinway in the family, and she had four older brothers who she watched one by one go off and work at the family business. So naturally, when she came of age, she asked her father, when do I start in the family business? And the story goes that he brought her to the piano and said, come here, open the piano, read me what it says in the piano, Steinway and Sons, please. Don't embarrass me. There's no women at Steinway & Sons. Even my secretary is a man. Close the lid of the piano. Forget it. Here's Andy Horbachevsky, vice president of Steinway & Sons, New York. What was amazing to me is that in the 10 years from um, 1853 to 1860, when they started the factory, the very big factory um, on, on Park Avenue here, they went from scratch to building the most pian grand pianos of any other piano manufacturers. And I think that's a credit to not only the excellent design and craftsmanship, but they were tremendous, I think, businessmen and marketers and salesmen. And more on Henry Steinway after these messages born on this day in history in 1797. And as always, our This Days in History are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale College, where you study all the things that matter in life. If you're a student there, philosophy, art, education itself also consists of sports there. And, well, of course, the Constitution and our founders. This day in history, Henry Steinway, the story continues, and it just gets better after these messages.
Alright my angel Time to close your eyes And save these questions For another day I think I know What you've been asking me I think you know What I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you And you should always know Wherever you may go No matter where you are I never will be far away This is Our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway being celebrated for the hour, born on this day in history in 1797. And we're playing Billy Joel for a reason. He said this about Steinway. I've long admired Steinway pianos for their quality of tone, clarity, pitch, consistency, touch, responsiveness, and superior craftsmanship. And thus Steinway continues to live on with so many artists to perform. Diana Krall, Harry Connick Jr. Irving Berlin only played Steinway's, George Gershwin, Vladimir Horowitz, Cole Porter, the list goes on and on. And with that, let's go back to the story of Henry Steinway. Each Steinway & Sons grand piano is handcrafted and comprises 12,000 individual parts, assembled by as many as 450 people. The process takes over a year to complete. Although it's always the same construction plans and materials, no two pianos ever sound alike. Steinway Grand Pianos all have their own individual sound and personality. Here's Lang Lang, who is considered by many to be one of the finest concert pianists of all time. Lang compares the best pianos to great actors for their ability to convey extremes of emotion and attitude. It was the flamboyant pianism in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, he says, that originally drew him to the instrument. I had a great privilege to go to um, both uh, Steinway factories in New York uh, and in Hamburg. And uh, the people who work there, they, they, they are really work into the very detailed work. Um, it's a big monster, right? I mean, it's huge, but when they start working, Almost like you found that they're, they're working on a Swiss watch. It's so detailed, everything's so precise, like they're making a violin or making some smaller item, you know. And, and that precise work really transferred uh, to, um, to the sound. There is a unique person in Steinway's factory, the one who makes the final tuning for all pianos before delivery. With an expert touch, he can quickly discern the questionable keys and makes chalk marks. Then he patiently adjusts the hammers to achieve the perfect string strokes. Because of his acute gift, he is known as Steinway's ear. Walter Boot is the heart and soul of Steinway & Sons and has been working in the piano factory in New York for over 50 years. Not a single Steinway piano leaves the building until it satisfies his absolute hearing. My job is to even out the tone. I get the piano, the piano is all done, ready to go to somebody's house. And I like fine tune it. I listen to it, I play it, I make it 
all the town even. So I'm happy with it. When I'm happy with it, I know you're going to be happy with it. I love working with Chinway. Chinway gave my whole life. They call me Uncle Wally because I worked here so long. When the piano come here, it looked like a piano. When it leaves, it sounds like a piano. Do I put the, the love into the piano? Mozart, Rachmaninoff. So it is a, a really a circle of refinement. As the piano moves to the end of the line, we're constantly working on the pianos. We're constantly trying to get that last, uh, that last ounce of, of tone out of it. We will baby that hammer. We will pull out as much as we can. If there was any single patent that made the most difference, it would be the overstrung one-piece cast iron frame. That's what differentiated the Steinway piano in its day. It was the first piano company to bring a grand piano with a one-piece cast iron frame to market successfully. They first showed it in 1867 in Paris. And pretty much you can measure the history of the piano from the time running up to that point and the time running away from that point. Because today you can't buy a piano that doesn't have a one-piece cast iron overstrung frame. But before that time, there were none. Together with his sons, Henry Steinway sees himself heading in the right direction. And his success proves him right. His credo is the same as ever to build the best pianos in the world. You see pictures of him, and there's only a couple of them, and he was ramrod straight, and his fists jammed into his pocket, and his set of his jaw just like this. He was very determined, determined to make a successful company, to make a success of his life in the United States, to give his children a better life than he had. I think it's that classic American story. The Steinway's future depends first on skill, then on national recognition to boost sales. The company founder has an ingenious idea. He realizes that the renowned pianists and composers of the time are the ideal advertisers for Steinway & Sons. So he signs the acclaimed artists exclusively to Steinway. They are not bashful. They are not afraid to tell us if something is not 100% with the piano itself. So we are very lucky to have this very good feedback information coming back to us from this very valuable part of our customer base, the concert artist. They then built the Steinway Hall. Here in the Steinway Hall is where concerts took place. When you wanted to go to the concert hall, you had to walk through the exhibition rooms. And so, naturally, they did even more advertising for the pianos with that. The New York Times wrote at the time, the Steinways can be proud that they own the most magnificent piano business in the whole world. Today, over 95% of the world's finest pianists prefer Steinway pianos for their concerts. At 67, Henry Steinway has fulfilled all his dreams. Reputation, wealth, 
and fame. But then, tragedy strikes. On March 11, 1865, Henry Jr. dies of consumption at the age of just 35. Then, just days later, Henry's other son Charles dies of typhoid fever while visiting his brother in Germany. It must have been devastating to Henry Steinway. I mean, to lose not only one son, but two sons. I mean, of course, that was an era where people died more easily. You didn't live as long and children died. But it was very, very difficult for him, especially you know, being an immigrant. I mean, his whole family, he brought with him. They were here. And when it's diminished by two, well, he did have the one son back in Germany, but when it's diminished the number that are in New York by two, that was when they wanted to bring C.F. Theodore over to you know, strengthen the family. It is William's job now to keep the family business running. He writes to his brother, Theodore, in Germany that they desperately need him in New York. And three weeks later, brothers William and Theodore form the perfect company management. Theodore invents groundbreaking features for grand piano mechanisms, and William knows how to sell them. Their success starts spiraling. This is Our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway, born on this day in history in 1797. The final segment after these messages. to hear somebody play upon a piano a grand piano it simply carries me away show them how to do it Ralph I love the fine way he plays a stein way I love to watch his fingers or the keys, the ivories, and with his pedal, he loves to meddle. Not only music from Broadway, he's so delighted when he's invited to hear some long-hat genius play. So you can keep your fiddle and your bow, give me a B-I-A-N-O-O-O, I love to stop right up to and up This is Our American Stories, you're listening to Tony Bennett and the great Ralph Sharon. And Bennett is one of those folks. His keyboard players always play a Steinway, too. And that brings us to the last second. The skill set, the way that the talents of the sons meshed, is really what made the difference. Because on the one hand, you had C.F. Theodore Steinway engineering the piano differently. But then on the other hand, you had his brother, William Steinway, who was changing the way you sold pianos, changing the marketing of pianos. And so when you had a company that had a demonstrably finer product, coupled with uh, a CEO, a corporate officer, who knew how to sell that product and was innovative in the ways he was selling that product, Boom, it came together and it just made a, a, a sum greater than the sum of the parts. Then in 1863, those parts were attacked by the Manhattan Workers' Union strikes. 
When the furniture makers union decided to target the piano industry, Steinway was the biggest, the, had the most prominent name, and they decided to target Steinway and Sons. I think William Steinway was tremendously surprised by that. Surprised, insulted, nonplussed, and he was shocked. Uh, his workers say he treated them as if they were his children. I mean, he had a very patronizing, in the best sense of the word, attitude towards his workers. He felt that he was their patron. He was their father figure. Um, at that time, he had a country house out here in Bowery Bay in Queens. And I think he had a revelation one day. He said, wait a minute. New York's over there. I have a house here. Here's all this land. The water, the ocean is right there. I can bring my warm materials in here. I can move my factory here. And I think he deliberately set about doing that, buying the acreage out here, um, moving the company out piece by piece, digging the tunnel underneath the East River. You know, the Steinway Tunnel was the first tunnel under the East River. I took it this morning when I took the subway into Manhattan. The number seven train goes through the William Steinway Tunnel. To get the workers out of the social unrest and union riots in Manhattan, Steinway has his Steinway Village, built in Astoria, Queens. And he built gymnasiums, and libraries, churches, housing for his workers, and a lot of it is still there. Um, you can see on the streets, you know, the streets have been renamed, you know, 30th Avenue, 31st Street, but you can go to some of the housing that was the factory housing, and you can see chiseled on stone on the side of the building, Albert Strasse, Friedrichstrasse, and that was the names that William Steinway had for his original city. Then... In 1880, Theodor will return to Germany in order to open and operate a second factory in Hamburg, Germany. Since then, they have split the global market into two parts. New York supplies North and South America, and Hamburg the rest of the world. And there are subtle differences. Certainly a little in terms of just the, the finish and the high gloss versus the satin look. But there are also, also some uh, tonal differences in terms of how the tone is perceived. From our perspective as a global company, uh, we like the choice. There are artists that prefer the New York instrument in, in Europe and vice versa, that in, in, in North America here, some prefer the Hamburg. We think that offering a choice is good and um, we will not change that in the future. The 150-year-old company produces about 2,000 handmade nine-foot concert grand pianos a year, compared with the approximately 100 a day by other companies. These magnificent instruments do not come cheap. One is shown in the Steinway showroom here in New York on West 57th Street with a price tag of $103,000. No wonder a prospective buyer is very particular in choosing a specific piano. Each handmade instrument has its own personality. Some yield brighter sounds, while others have deeper, more muted timbers. The limited production hinges a lot on the brand's quite severe selection standards for timber. After all, 85% of the Steinway piano is made from wood. Precious timbers from all over the world are neatly stacked in Steinway's warehouses and there they spend two years in their natural drying process before the next step. Space between them ensures good air circulation and the pliability of wood. After the drying process, only 50 to 60% pass the rigorous quality checks to become piano parts. 
as the soundboard is the central part of a piano, the design and selection of the materials for it must be meticulous. The artisans select the finest North American spruce. Spruce has the desired regular grain to ensure a smooth resonance. Only 5 to 10 percent of the timber from one tree can be used for the handmade soundboard by the experienced artisans. Australian concert pianist Piers Lane has specially flown to Hamburg to choose three concert grands for his hometown Sydney. Which works as well. There's a, a singing sound with quality. Now it'd be interesting to compare that with the one down the end, say. So if we start with the same thing now. Piers is attended to by a Steinway & Son sales consultant, Garrett Glonner, who jots down notes while following Piers around a brightly lit showroom filled with Steinway grand pianos. I don't feel it's got the same fineness of quality as the other one in the tone, but let's try some Mozart. got the same depth of character as the other one. The other one's got more core to the sound. I want to compare that now with the first one. After a sound test marathon of six and a half hours, the pianist is just about to choose the three Steinway Grands that he finds worth considering among the huge selection. It's interesting because it makes me play it in a slightly different way, this piano. How do you feel, Garrett? The middle one is a kind of a mix of both. It's true. But yeah. uh, if I should use the term noblesse, yes. I would find it most in this Broken one because this there's yeah. some extra glints on, yeah. on each note. And I think yeah. it has a beautiful cantabile. I like the balance of the piano. Exactly. It feels you know, even across the whole range. But at the same time, it has the classical... Um, transparency as well in the texture. Periodically, there has been in the history of the piano, uh, the death bell has been summoned or been struck. You know what happened in the 1920s when player pianos started and when radio came on? People said, oh, well, nobody will listen to pianos anymore. After World War II, with hi-fi and television, people said, oh, people won't have pianos anymore. In the 50s, with electric pianos and Hammond organs, oh no, people will never need pianos anymore. Didn't happen then, hasn't happened now, you know? And still people are, are, are improving, tinkering, as you say, a little bit with the piano, just trying to find small improvements to it. But there's nothing that can replace it. Nothing can replace the sound of a grand piano, well played. After 74 years, in 1871, an unusual life journey comes to an end. A journey that took the orphan from the Hartz Mountains in Germany to the highest highs of music. Courage, perseverance, and family were his strengths. 
After 150 plus years of turmoil, feuds, depression, wars, competition from the Far East, and people increasingly wanting their music from radios, records, cassettes, compact discs, and MP3 players, nothing has silenced the Steinway sound. Even if what Steinway is now selling is its past, rather than any technical innovations. A New York Times reporter referred to the Steinway factory as a resilient treasure in a city that wonders whether it has lost its soul. With his Steinway and Sons piano, Henry Steinway has made himself immortal. And great job on that as always, Greg. We love these hours. And by the way, only 50% of companies will survive the first five years of business. Only a third will survive 10. In family-owned businesses, 70% fail in the second generation, 88% dead on arrival by the third generation, and Steinway, my goodness, still thriving and on a fifth generation. This is Our American Stories, an immigrant story, an American enterprise story, an American exceptionalism story. It's all there, and it's tied to art and commerce, as it always is. This is Our American Stories, and as always, our This Day in History, brought to us by the great people and the great folks at Hillsdale College. ¶¶ 